everybody, and welcome back to... We've Got Mail! Oh yeah! This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. For the purposes of this particular podcast, uh, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. Uh, you don't have to, though. You can call me Whitney. You can call me Hey Jerk if you want. I'll respond. Anyway, Hey Jerk and I uh, do a lot of talking here at the Critically Acclaimed <laughs> Network. And this is the show where, uh, well, we still will, but we want to give everybody an opportunity to write in if you have any uh, questions you want to talk about anything particular, you want to hear your thoughts on a certain subject, you want to get recommendations about something, you want to find out how the industry works, you have questions about film and film criticism, or if you want to criticize us, mm. because we are anything but perfect. Uh, so feel free to write in. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We also have a P.O. Box. Real fast, what is that? Uh, critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Send us a piece of physical mail if you like. And, uh, yeah, uh, with that said, we don't want to dilly-dally. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whitney, tell us about our first letter. Okay, uh, this is a letter that comes from Andrea. Hello, Andrea. Hi, Andrea. Um, however, I have to uh, put an asterisk by this particular letter. I want to address something that's in this letter, but I can't read the whole thing because it gives a lot of spoilers. Okay, for a recent uh, for, film. For a recent film that, that we reviewed recently. Um, okay. So I'll read the beginning. It says, Hi guys, as a cinephile, I decided to give your podcast a listen while doing my workout this morning. I am a Canadian white female, 60 years old. So privileged, uh, my, so privileged place in the societal hierarchy is assured in spite of my femaleness. I never write emails like this, but your review of The Power of the Dog mm. uh, had me yelling at my Bluetooth speaker. You missed so much of the point of Jane Campion's film. Mm. All of her films are, as you correctly say, are about gender politics. And... The rest of the letter goes into details about the power of the dog that we didn't just uh, mention in Mm -hmm. our review of the power of the dog. Uh, We didn't do this for a reason. And I wanted to address this letter because Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what this letter is sort of taking us to task for is ignoring a big element of the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which which we did. Which we did. We ignored the big element of the movie and we did that very deliberately. Yeah. uh, Because I think uh, William William and I both felt, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, William, Mm. but uh, we felt that talking about certain elements of the characters and what happened later in the movie and how it would shed light on certain character dynamics that happened earlier in the movie would constitute spoiling the movie. It would yeah. give away a little bit too much as to what the movie is, yeah, and it would a, kind of put a little bit of a button on it, and we didn't want to necessarily go into an analytic essay of the film. Especially not right after it came out. Especially right after it came out, yeah. uh, more than we just wanted to give it a review. Yeah. And you and I both agreed that it, it's an excellent movie. It's uh, a great movie. I think it's one of the best films of the year, frankly. And the element of the movie that we did not discuss, mm. I think it's handled really beautifully by the film, uh, in a very complex way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a very uh, 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 intricate way uh, that has an incredible impact on the entire narrative, parts that we discussed yeah. on, on the show and the parts that we didn't. Yeah. Um, however, uh, Jane Campion is such a particular and meticulous filmmaker, they wanted to introduce those elements in a certain way mm. over time. And if we had just dropped it onto the show and talked about it, that would be fair. Because then we'd be talking about the whole movie, but considering the movie was really new, 
It's still new. It's still relative. Some, some still people new. probably yeah. haven't seen it yet. It is on Netflix, yeah. but you know, yeah. it's also going to be released in theaters. When, when we decide what to talk about in a movie, our, my general rule of thumb in terms of what's fair game in a movie, in terms of like what to reveal about the plot or whatever, mm-hmm. is if it's in the trailer, it's fair game. Yeah, the, the people who made the, the movie are clearly okay with you knowing that, or at least the studio. Who at least the studio made, is fine. With that it. trailer, but regardless, it's perfectly reasonable care. that by chance you would know all mm-hmm. of this stuff. Everything beyond that that we decide to discuss in a show is, and, and sometimes we do it well, sometimes we, we screw up, mm-hmm. but we are making a choice of if we discuss this scene or this plot element or this thematic element, mm-hmm. uh, are we doing the film a disservice or are we giving you information that you need to know if the movie is good or interesting or even bad or not? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we make that call with every single movie we talk about, whether it's new or not. You know, if it's old and if it's, we can feel like it's kind of really well known. We might yeah. be able to talk about spoilers pretty freely, but if it's not well known, even if it is fifty years old, we might play a little bit more coy because we want people yeah. to discover it yeah. by themselves. Because unlike something like I don't know, Psycho, hmm. it hasn't entered the pop culture vernacular, and new movies have not had a chance to do this at all. Yeah. Yeah. So we usually err more on the side of caution with new movies. Occasionally, we'll make an executive decision, but. Usually we're going to be very, very cautious on new movies because we want people to have this rare opportunity yeah. to see them before so, the discourse takes over. Um, the letter that Andrea wrote is actually uh, very eloquent. It's actually a very good analysis of what happened in The Power of the Dog. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, taking us to task for not mentioning that stuff, I just wanted to defend ourselves well, a little bit because I, we did make a conscious choice as reviewers. Had we been uh, doing a, sort of a, a little bit more of an in-depth film discussion, yeah, we were doing a critically was, reclaimed, exactly. We, understanding a, we're doing every part, a, a of the little bit film. more of a, sort of a, a, a gathering, you know, a, a deep dive, yeah. you know, an analysis. We're all getting together and picking apart the movie. We would have happily gone into every detail of this movie, and we would have yeah. gone on for a long time. I think we could have gone on a long time because it's actually a, a, a rich, complex movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a, a lot of the things that uh, you're talking about, Andrea, were things that we well, actively elected to exclude from our review uh, as to not mm-hmm. spoil the surprise. Uh, as reviewers, we co- sort of take it as our stance to point people in the right direction for movies that we want to recommend. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe we were sufficient in that. We were able to point people toward the power of the dog. Well, I hope we were, but I do think mm-hmm. it's fair to say, you, you say that you're taking sort of a defensive position. Um, I think it's fair to say... Mm-hmm. We made a conscious choice. You and I both decided like what to talk about and what to sort of leave out so that other people who hadn't seen the movie yet would be able to discover it for themselves. Mm-hmm. That's a conscious decision. That doesn't necessarily mean it's the best one. Yeah. One could argue that it would have done the film more favors to go into great depth mm-hmm. so that people could appreciate just how in depth it was, just how much rich just how rich the text really was. And maybe you know, maybe we're spoiling some things. Maybe we're not giving the audience enough credit and they would have figured out the subtext as early as we did, which is mm. not that far into the film. But yeah, I, it's I, not made explicit until later on. And I think I made allusion to... Uh, there, there's a scene in the movie with uh, involving a cigarette, which mm. uh, is this a very open, telling moment between mm. two characters. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, and there's, because there's, I, cause I want you to experience that scene yourself. Exactly. So, regardless, we made a choice. Mm. Was it a bad choice? Maybe. And we will take that into account. And we will consider when we talk about, especially new movies, we want to, we want to do the film a service without completely ruining the experience of, explore, of 
enjoying it for the first time. Mm-hmm. We we usually do our reviews after a movie has come out, so we have a little bit more leeway. Because if we do it like a week before it comes out, which sometimes we could, um, we don't always have. No one else. No one. No one. No one in our audience has seen it yet. Mm-hmm. So everything we talk about is, if not necessarily a spoiler, it may be more information than they really want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they won't necessarily have context for it. Uh, yeah. There's a reason why review. Uh, a, it, this is mostly a part of the publicity machine, but there's a reason why reviews come out at all around the same time. There's a uh, in our business there are embargoes. Uh, you're not allowed to release a review of a film until a studio. It uh, gives you a certain date by which you uh, can publish mm-hmm. a review. As such, the reviews come out at around the same time. The conversation has now begun. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you re- release a review too far in advance, the conversation really hasn't begun yet. You're just sort of telling people about it. And um, the uh, the conversation changes shape a little bit. Um, yeah. It's not the worst thing in the world if somebody publishes a review early. Uh the embargoes are pretty much just for politeness sake. There's no law. Uh, you can't be yeah. sued or anything. No, you um, might you might not be invited back to another yeah, screening, that, but even as, that's as, pretty, but, pretty but again, rare. One critic doesn't get invited back to the screening. The general public doesn't care about that. That's just us professionally. Yeah. Um, it, it's just good. It's just good form to to respect the embargoes. Uh, and as such, because people tend to respect these embargoes. The, the conversation does begin at a certain time, which means people can actually start talking back and forth about it a little bit more. And social media has allowed that to happen with a lot more ease. Mm -hmm. Uh, and certain details can sort of proliferate. If we reviewed films early, it's all up to us, isn't it? And we can't talk as openly about certain details. Or if we do, we run the risk of people saying you ruined it for me. We don't want that. Um, so I don't like to, I don't like generally speaking reviewing movies in a podcast form. I think in print there's a general understanding that you're gonna have to go into some depth. Yeah. But like on Twitter or on a podcast where it's a bit more conversational, a bit more loosey goosey. Um, yeah, I don't like doing it too far in advance because you don't really get to go into any sort of depth. But at least a couple of days later, you've had an opportunity, especially with streaming movies like Power of the Dog. So. Yeah. In any case, um, yeah, thank you for for taking us to task on this. It's something that we can't take for granted. And we're going to do our best to make these choices, well, not lightly. Mm. We want to, well, we want to, we want are, yeah. But these are, these are the choices that we're, we're confronted the, the, with every is, single time yeah, we review a movie. Basically. I, and and I, I did want to sort of defend yeah. ourselves that this was a choice we made and not, right. not an oversight on our part. Yeah. And I just want to, and I'll, and I'll just say this much, just because it's a choice doesn't mean it's always the right one. Um, so it's fair to bring up, uh, but uh, we do have a reason for this. Uh, and uh, we will we will make sure that we're careful in how we make these decisions. Okay. There we go. Anyway, right. Thank you so much. Uh, here's a letter from a film fan man. Ooh. Hello, film fan man. Uh, hope That's you, a superhero I'd like to... I hope you have like a mummy costume made of 35 millimeter film strips. That's cool. Uh, Messrs. Bibiani and Seibold, longtime listener, second time writer. Hello. Uh, so here's something I've always wondered about and disliked. Why do we, or why does the movie industry, choose to measure the success of movies in terms of box office gross? With inflation, various prices for tickets, adult senior matinees, etc., add-ons like 3D and IMAX, measuring a film's popularity, if that's what we're doing, by dollars seems to be inaccurate and misleading, especially in a historical context uh, to comparison and comparisons to the movies of the past. 
While the gross is important to the studio accountants, I believe the metric most fans are interested in is how many people saw it. Wouldn't it be more mm. straightforward just to tell us how many tickets were sold for a movie? For comparison, record sales are measured and discussed in terms of units sold, million sellers, uh, not how much the record grossed. A good point. Uh, one additional somewhat associated question. I subscribe to one of the major theater chains movie memberships where I go to get all the movies I want for a monthly membership fee. When I use this to see a film, I can see how uh, it would I can see how it could count as a ticket sold, but it does not contribute to the movie's gross when I didn't pay anything for that specific movie. Yeah. Uh, thanks for all the great shows you do. Regards, Film Fan Man. That is a great question. Uh, I love that question because that's something, that's something a lot of people take for granted. It's something a lot of people take for granted, and it, it comes back to something I, I kvetch about constantly, about how we tend to care about movie grosses when we shouldn't. Uh when I was a young man, movie grosses were printed in the Los Angeles newspapers. Yeah, but that's we're because we're in Los Angeles. We're in Los Angeles. This yeah. is where the industry is, and a lot and of industry people were reading the yeah, LA the Times. The Topeka Gazette maybe maybe wouldn't dedicate as like much a, space to that. A, a library, might be a little, there uh, might be a little column in the entertainment yeah. section on Tuesday. Like, no, a, like a little, no, a little in, blurb. Not in Topeka. There, I'm just they, saying. They wouldn't be talking about that stuff at all. Uh, I'm just there saying, was, yeah. There was... Unless it was like noteworthy. Hmm. If there was a library like yeah. in another state and they had you know, access to the LA Times, that yeah, would be yeah. the only time you get it. Uh, and it wasn't until yeah. websites like Box Office Mojo came up that mm. people kind of got a little better line as to what things were grossing nationwide and worldwide. Mm. Uh, and we started to wield those numbers irresponsibly. Uh, <laughs> we we took that as a sign of a film's uh, likability. Not just how many people yeah. saw it. I think I think there is something to be said when a movie like breaks records. You know, like that, if, that's, like, that's like, an like, interesting news. Like story, when Titanic, sure. when like Titanic is making money over the course of like four months, that's some indication that the movie is popular. People are clearly seeing it more than once. It's got word of mouth, mm. but that's rare. Usually, movies do whether or not the, the actual numbers, whatever the numbers are, they do about the same. They do really well opening weekend, then they fall off a little bit, fall off a little bit, and then eventually they're gone. Mm. Depending on how good the marketing was or how pre-established the fan base was for the talent involved or the intellectual property involved. That's that's mm -hmm. regardless. It's just it's how many tickets you sold. It doesn't necessarily mean you liked it after you bought the ticket. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think is really significant here. Yeah. There's a lot of movies that make a ton of money. But nowadays we look back at them and go, well, that wasn't very good. People still saw it. It made a ton of money. Yeah. The ones that I find really curious are the ones that make a ton of money, but don't seem to emerge in the popular conversation as a, a great work of art or anybody's mm -hmm. favorite. Uh, yeah. Aquaman is the example of this. Mm. Aquaman was staggeringly popular. Made over a billion dollars. Aquaman. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. Aquaman made more money than a movie where Batman fought Superman for the first time. Uh, I never would have seen that coming. It, it got generally favorable reviews, but nobody gave it a hugely glowing review. Nobody called it, mm. like, a, the new vanguard of superhero cinema. No, it's just, it was just a it's fun just, adventure it, It's passable. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, the, the highest review was three stars. Yeah. Every review is, like, about three stars. Mm. Uh, and I, anecdotally, I haven't talked to too many people who called Aquaman their favorite of anything, mm. of any genre or of that series. Just, it, oh, that was a fun one. It was a fun, silly movie with a, a Cthulhu and, and Fishmen. Oh, people liked it. It was big, silly entertainment. But it made a yeah. billion dollars. Yeah. One of the more successful movies of all time. What is yeah. what is this saying? 
what, what's the conversation we're having here mm-hmm. about how much money it made versus, uh, versus how beloved people, it yeah, is yeah, or how, is. how meaningful it is to people. I, th- I think what the conclusion we can come to is those things don't connect. Not necessarily. How popular no. something is has nothing to do with how beloved it is. No, and in fact, they often have to do with external factors, nothing to do with anything. Um, did we, was there nothing else like it at the time competing for the same dollars? That can be a part of that kind of box I, I, office growth. Yeah, I suppose so. That, that, one of many factors. Yeah. Um, one could look at like, is it part of a hit franchise right now where anything makes more money because it's part of it? Mm. That can be a factor as well. Um, it could, there's, there's a, there's a bunch of little things. Mm. Uh, but basically what it boiled down to is at the time, that's what people wanted to see. Mm. That's not necessarily what they're going to keep with them in their hearts. Yeah. It's not something they're going to revisit every single year. Um, look at something like, I don't know, A Christmas Story, which was not a huge hit when it came out and yeah. then became a holiday staple that people watch every single year and became a cottage industry. There's like merchandise. And you can buy that lamp that's on the shape of a leg. I have that lamp. Yeah, I know you Christmas do. Christmas gift. I know, but like that's that. Who would have thought when that movie was released to tepid box office numbers in the early 80s mm-hmm. that it would be... Yeah. Revered today as one yeah, of the all-time yeah. great Christmas movies. There's uh, if you if you because, think there's a connection uh, that would baffle you, but because everybody has access to these numbers, they get to play sort of armchair executive yeah. and pretend like they know uh, what significance this has. And the conversation that something is really really significant mm-hmm. because they know exactly how much money it made on opening weekend is kind of where the conversation goes. There are people out there who do box office analysis mm-hmm. who are very good at it. Some of them actually uh, come up with interesting points. Yeah, some, some like yeah. theories as to how the business operates. And it's their job to have a line on business and understand yeah. where things open, why they open in certain yeah. ways, uh, when they were released during the year, all these numbers. It, it's almost like sports stats where yeah. like, you look at someone like I oh, hear so many home runs they've hit, and you use that to say they don't just you don't just go it's not interesting. You have to come up with the narrative, yeah, for that. Yeah, here's um, why that's interesting. Here's here's the yeah. story behind it. The problem is everybody thinks they can do that, uh, or yeah. uh, they're just you know it's easy to do badly, hard to do points. well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so we start to get sort of lost in the weeds very often as to what the significance of a film's financial success is. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason we've chosen to do financial success is because that's the bigger number yeah. because of inflation. That number keeps going up and up and up. And it sounds far more impressive mm-hmm. if you say, Oh, this made a billion dollars when, uh, if you were to compare this to something like, uh, you know, a, a hit of yesteryear, uh, Goldfinger. Yeah. Goldfinger. Some, yeah. Something that came out in the you know, yeah. 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Goldfinger sold infinitely uh, more tickets than most of the biggest movies you've ever heard of. Yeah. The, I think uh, yeah. adjusted for inflation, the sound of music is like the fourth highest grossing film of all time. Yeah. Uh, like more the, than most uh, star Wars movies. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think people like to sort of focus on the new a because of addiction to novelty and B because uh, it, Sounds impressive when the record is constantly changing mm-hmm. rather than this one's been at the top for 50 years. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> we, you ask a good question, which is why don't we talk about seats filled? Yeah. As opposed to the money made. It's because if you talk about seats filled, you're not going to get those record numbers that make people exactly. look good and exactly. help people help executives uh, keep their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you, uh, yeah. This, this is a, a big uh, issue with it, with both seats filled and record grosses is. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to like opening nights, there is some ballot box stuffing going on. Mm. Uh, I've gone to sold out shows where that weren't full. And this, you know, the, I'm not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, mm. but it does happen from time to time when uh, studios or executives or just people buy more tickets than they need to sort of change the number for whatever reason they need to. I don't know how true. I, I don't know about any of I've, that. I've but... worked in movie theaters. I've seen it happen. Okay. Uh, 
again, that's not. I, I have no firsthand experience with anything like that. I'm not. I can't contribute to that. I can't verify that. I, I don't doubt you, but I just have nothing to. Mm-hmm. I can't corroborate. But um, regardless, this is why on a lot of these box office websites, you have the option to view like the top grossing films of all time today in just raw dollars and just raw dollars, or you can look at it adjusted for inflation. Mm-hmm. Now I've had a lot of conversations with people in the industry where I would talk about numbers that were adjusted for inflation and they'll roll their eyes and go, that's not relevant. And I'm like, it's only not relevant if all you care about is getting new records. Mm-hmm. What's relevant is what puts butts in seats. Yeah. And when you look at the movies that put butts in seats, regardless of era, the movies that put butts in seats are the movies that felt like a happening. You have to go see this. It's the movie to see right now. If you want to follow along in the conversation, if you want to know what everyone's talking about, you have to see this. This is one of the reasons why what Marvel is doing is so brilliant is because every single movie they put out feels like you have to see this right now. It's important. Everyone's talking about it. And as long as they keep that going, they'll be fine for a while. But if you even you can even make that a really tiny movie. Paranormal Activity was able to do that on a budget of like $10,000. You have to see this. Someone made a movie for $10,000. It's the scariest thing you've ever seen. It's a happening. Mm. Get Out was the same way. You have to see how incredibly relevant this is. It's incredible. Everyone's talking about it. You don't want to be left out of this conversation. That's how you put butts in seats. doesn't even matter if they're good. Most of the movies I just talked about were, but it doesn't even matter if they're good. Box office doesn't correlate to quality. However, there's a temptation, a frustrating temptation when you're having a conversation about a movie's quality and you want to like something tangible to hang on to, like I like this movie and to prove it, look at the box office. It's clearly, clearly it's possible. So see, it's math. Somebody agrees with me. It's math. Numbers equal math, right? Mm. No numbers equal box office numbers. Unless the movie really had legs, like my big fat Greek wedding or something. Box office numbers are based off of how many people we tricked into buying a ticket. Mm. Whether or not they liked it is irrelevant to the marketers. They don't care. They just want you to buy that ticket. Once they do, you do. They've done their job. And ca- casual audiences uh, are even picking up on the, like, second week drop-off. Yeah. Like, if, if uh, a, an opening weekend is gigantic and the second week is minuscule... Mm-hmm. Bad that, word of mouth. Yeah, that that's a pretty good sign that everybody was tricked into seeing it. They liked yeah. the advertising. They were excited. And when they left, then, they told their friends, don't go. And, yeah, or they didn't go back and see it a second time. Yep. They saw it once and they were done. Exactly. I know a lot. A repeat business is a reason why yeah. a lot of these numbers are so big. There's no objective way to determine quality. It's always subjective. Mm-hmm. Maybe a lot of people agree that something is good, but even, even that's the, subject to change over even time. The rot- and, uh, even the Rotten Tomato scores, mm-hmm. which are, are wielded in a very similar fashion are not an objective measure of quality. Yeah. It's it's an amalgam yeah. of many different critics' points of view. Yeah. And uh, it's still going to be boiled down to positive versus negative, thumbs up versus thumbs down. It's very binary. It's uh, annoying, it's, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, as a critic, that's really annoying because I want a little bit more nuance in my reviews uh, rather than just a fresh or rotten. But you put it together in a, a percentage, it's really easy to, to uh, start using those numbers as proof mm. as to a film's quality like well no it just means like 90 percent of the critics gave it a pass 10 percent of the critics didn't nobody's right or wrong in this mm-hmm. this is just what critics said and, and doesn't even talk about like how passionate we are there could be a mm. very 
very tepid pass. Like it's it's two and a half stars. It's fine. Yeah, Aquaman. Yeah. Well, <laughs> everybody yeah. Gave, everybody might have given it a tepid pass, but everybody gave yeah. it a tepid pass. Yeah, because there's really so, nothing wrong. So with it has it, like a ninety know. some percent approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It doesn't mean it's ninety uh, percent good. Yeah, it just means ninety percent of people thought it was fine. It I doesn't guess. mean it's in the ninetieth percentile of cinema. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that's hopefully that addresses some of your question. It's an mm. ongoing thing, and unfortunately, it's something that it's information that a lot of people don't know how to wield. It's and uh, I, I would be interested if anybody's willing to to go with me on this experiment mm. to uh, try to avoid that information, block it on your social media. Yeah. Don't go to box office mojo. Don't listen to what people have to say about how much money a movie earns. See the mm. movie and think of it outside of the box office. Imagine yeah. the movie. Imagine nobody gets to see it but you. Yeah. Imagine nobody gets. To, well, imagine nobody gets to see the box office information. Yeah. Just imagine that. What if they didn't? Mm. It just came out, and if it's still in theaters after a month, it must be doing okay. You mm. probably glean that from the infor- from from yeah. that much. But like, what if you just didn't know? Would that be better? I honestly don't think it'd be worse. Certainly not. I think, I mean, a few pundits would have less to talk about, but like this used to be information that was like only for Hollywood insiders because it was just people knew like, oh, that's how big that was opening weekend. Well, good for them. Maybe we should uh, try to jump on that bandwagon and do another film in the same genre. Like that's what they're doing. But those are the people who are making the movies. Those are the executives. That's inside baseball. Everyone's outside baseball getting all the inside baseball stats and they don't know what to do with it because it doesn't relate to them. Mm. It's not, it's not going to affect her decision-making process much. And if it is, it's probably affecting it too much because just because the movie's making money doesn't mean it's good. And just because the movie isn't making money doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. There's too many other factors involved. So we, we share your frustration, listener. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a pain. Yeah, anyway, we should move uh, on. Here's a letter from Dr. Nova. Hello, Dr. Nova. Hi, Dr. Uh, Nova. Hi, Bibbs and Dr. Rockmeister McCool. I just watched Through the, uh, through the Spider-Verse trailer, Through the Spider-Verse. Is that the new one? Oh, that's the new one. Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. yeah. Uh, and it just reminded me that most superhero movies look ugly as sin. Yeah. Uh, the MCU and DC movies have this terrible gray filter over the top of it, and it just uh, fails to hide bad CGI and makes the whole thing look dull as dishwater. Mm. Uh, Harry Potter numbers four through eight had the same problem, especially Goblet of Fire, which was all fog and overcast, even when there was no logical reason to do so, and it would have been better if they hadn't. That's why the best-looking superhero movies are Logan, which looks like a Western, Mm -hmm. and Into the Spider-Verse, which looks like a comic book. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I see movies, I want to experience the full art of filmmaking. That's why Arrival and Dune and Mad Max Fury Road are as good as they are. Uh, What do you think is the best-looking movie, animated or live-action? And what do you think of my observation of superhero movies, Dr. Nova? Um, First off, regarding your observation about superhero movies, you've got a point. Um, There's definitely a house aesthetic to the big franchises, regardless of what the franchise is. Hmm. Uh, for the most part, the films in that franchise will look pretty similar to each other. Occasionally, someone will take a big leap in order to try to keep it fresh. Hmm. Uh, but Marvel movies, they've all got this kind of like, this could be happening in the real world kind of look. I think John Favreau kind of set the tone. John Favreau is a very good filmmaker. He's not the most visually arresting filmmaker we've ever had. What I, and I think he's I think the fact that he uh, grounded Iron Man in this sort of almost primetime TV aesthetic mm. um, just set a stage to set a tone that everyone's yeah, had to either deal with or only consciously change. You uh, can't just like just do your own thing yeah, completely. It, it, they all, all, of, they all fit in the same world. The, the look was all extrapolated from John Favreau. And let me look up the, the photographer of Iron Man. I, I don't because, know that uh, I, yeah. that, that's um, probably the real person we should give credit to. Mm-hmm. Um 
But uh, yeah, they they started when they decided to start making these movies uh, interconnect. Yeah, which wasn't the initial plan. Yeah. Uh, they, they all have to look kind of like they yeah. exist together. Yeah. Exactly. So they had to sort of start changing, uh, choosing uh, like a similar look for them all. Um, the yeah. photographer was uh, Matthew Libatique. Was oh, the, good. Was the cinematographer good for Iron Man. Very good DP. Uh, Matthew Libatique uh, created that look for Iron Man with John yeah. Favreau. And uh, yeah, everything you, you said likened it to primetime mm-hmm. TV. And I appreciate actually John Favreau's sense of visual clarity. Yeah. It's actually one of the things I like about him as a director. He wants to show okay. you everything and make sure you see it. There's yeah. no obfuscation. Which is great for blockbuster uh, filmmaking. Yeah, for, for, a big, for a big action picture yeah. where there's going to be a lot of explosions and fast movement, I want to be able to see all I, of it. I share your frustration mm. at the David Yates era of the Harry Potter series <laughs> yeah. because David Yates, I don't honestly don't understand why they stuck with him for so long. His movies aren't that great. I haven't seen a David Yates film I like yet. I, mm, yeah, me either, honestly. Like, I, I guess one or two of the Potter films were fine, but like, mm. this... this Grungy, and I don't mean grungy as in like cool grunge rock. I mean grungy as in we haven't washed our linens, but we're still using them as camera filters. Like this look, it's I think it's supposed to seem very dour and serious, but it's just not telling the story very clearly. You're not using all the tools at your disposal. We were just talking about West Side Story here, Mm -hmm. where Janusz Kaminski is a is a cinematographer with a with a pretty established look to a lot of his movies. He likes his movies to look certain ways. Oftentimes, the the brightness of the colors is drained out a bit. He likes to blast light through windows so you can't even see what's outside the window. But in West Side Story, he knew that there were scenes when you couldn't do that. And there are scenes in West Side Story which are full of gorgeous, gigantic palettes of color. Mm. He knows when to t- when to change that to tell a story. And that's a clever thing to do. Um, I think it is frustrating that a lot of superhero franchises are limited to a house aesthetic. Yeah, well, it's when uh, the reason they all look that way, too, is it's not just cleaving to the house aesthetic. It's that a lot of these decisions are being made long before uh, filmmakers are brought in. Yeah. Uh, Directors and writers are sort of fitting what's already been laid down. And in a lot of cases, they're even shooting stuff like action sequences or at least conceiving of them and doing pre-production on uh, sequences before the scripts are finished or before the director is brought on. Uh, And that sort of uh, ties the hands of whoever's in charge. Mm. And as such, they all have to start looking really the same just by necessity of the factory. They have to churn them out in a very similar way because Mm. that's the way they make these kinds of movies. This is how TV is also. Like, it's just a matter of you have to do a lot Mm. and it's easier to just try to make them all sort of fit together than try to reinvent the wheel every single time you tell a new chapter. Mm -hmm. Um but that being said, the, the other question was, and this is and this is purely subjective, obviously, but mm. what are some of the best looking movies you've ever seen? What are the best? What is yeah, the most um, gorgeous cinematography you've ever seen? Uh, th- this is going to be one because I just saw it recently. But Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander, okay, Sven Nyqvist, uh, one of the best cinematographers ever. Very uh, good pick was able to fill the screen with not just richness, but Mm. a light you could taste. Like there's this weird kind of almost synesthesia going on when you watch some Sven Nickvist films, especially uh, Fanny and Alexander, which has such sumptuous colors and such beautiful composition. uh, And uh, how the mood of the film is completely dictated by the colors and the lighting and sort of the way the shots are set up uh, later in the movie. Um, Fanny and Alexander is about uh, these two young children who, uh, who lose their father and their, and their mother has to remarry. 
and uh, this kind of wicked stepfather. Mm-hmm. It's uh, there's a lot of uh, autobiographical stuff from Bergman's own life in it, and. At the beginning of the movie, it's it's like a Christmas explosion. They're in these like really warm interiors and you want to be in those spaces and everybody's really well dressed and they're telling Christmas stories and everybody's into theater and life. And uh, in the last parts of the movies, there are all these like stark whites and grays. Uh, and it's all very obvious. It's not the subtle thing that's happening. Yeah. Uh, it, it's one of those movies that the story is actually being told a lot through its cinematography. And if... Uh, you don't know Swedish and you turn the subtitles off, you'd still know exactly what was happening in something like Fanny and Alexander, especially if you're seeing the longer version. Um, that's one of the better looking movies, I think. Uh, in terms of richness and light and storytelling and subtlety, mm-hmm. if you want to go for something that's just wild and fun to look at and it's just sort of throwing a lot of colors at you, you could go for something like Speed Racer. Or, uh, yeah, I, I remember... Um, I'd have to look up the, the critic, but they described a speed racer as this weird world where ultra turquoise is the new black. <laughs> I've always liked that phrase. Um, not, not mine. That was another uh, critic. Phrase. But, uh, so something like speed racer is just so wild and creative and mm-hmm. fun to look at that you could be tempted to say that's one of the best looking movies of all time. Yeah. Sometimes the best looking movies has nothing to do with the quality of the film. No, there are some uh, great looking, awful movies. Yeah, I wouldn't, go, I wouldn't go far and say it's awful, but like a movie that I'm so, this is one of the few films where I'm like, you ever get a chance to see this on the big screen? You probably won't because of the studio, but if you ever get a chance to see this on the big screen, do. Mm. Tron Legacy is pretty. <laughs> Tron Legacy has a great aesthetic. It's a really too, pretty film. Oh my god! I, I actually god. actually don't like the movie, but it, it looks gorgeous. Gorgeous! I'm not gonna argue they, that. He knows he that dude was painting mm. with light and shadow, mm. and that's a lot of my favorite things. Cinematography is you're you're painting with light. Mm. You're you're deciding how much light is hitting every single surface and what kind of light and how that light will dapple and how that light will characters will move in and out of light and shadow. And a lot of filmmakers today aren't as creative with that in a way that kind of frustrates me mm. um a lot of my favorite you know uh, uh aesthetically pleasing films are horror movies that are just absolutely like operating on the edges of sanity yeah uh like uh david lynch has made quite a few films that are like oh, unbelievably God, yeah. gorgeous lot, um, i think i would argue lost highway is his best shot movie. i think there's a really just good to, just to, yeah just f- photographically it's just really gorgeous it's the way really really stunning the composition um, the way he plays with like all the blacks and yeah. dark colors uh look at the works of mario bava Uh, watch black Sunday from 1960. That is a movie that it's a black and white film that I've noticed this weird thing lately where a lot of black and white movies are really emphasizing the white. Mm -hmm. Like the light is kind of overpowering and the shadows aren't that shadowy. It's mostly just like white. It's not even as much black and white as it is gray and white. Um, And Mario Bava with black Sunday was like, he was like ink. He was just slathering the screen with ink practically Mm -hmm. in terms of how much depth of black he could get in his shadows. That movie is absolutely unbelievably gorgeous. Um, Recently, I think my favorite cinematography I've seen Mm. this year, and there's no shortage of great cinematography this year. None. Um, The green Knight, gorgeous cinematography. Mm -hmm. I like the way that I'm not a huge fan of the movie. The, the, the lighting is incredible. Yeah. Uh, that was really, really good. Power of the Dog is an incredible, incredibly mm-hmm. shot uh, motion picture. Uh, but my favorite cinematography is a movie that is doing everything I'm talking about but with light, but is also really excitingly telling the story through use of camera angle and camera movement 
and that's the harder they fall. Yeah, yeah. that is a movie that is telling a story with you, that you could take the dialogue out of that movie. That movie is telling the story mm. with its camera. That no. all the inflection is in the camera movements. No. That's hard to do, and that's something I've always of, gravitated towards. Think of in like films. one that I like, really wowed me. Oh, you know what really wowed me recently? What's that? Uh, in, in recent years, was The Lighthouse. Yeah, uh, it's that, a great looking movie. That is is really one of the best looking movies of the last few years. Just yeah. uh, every. Uh, Speaking of a, a photographer's eye, just uh, <laughs> the the way it handles black and white and the way it handles texture. Um, a lot of what we're sort of complaining about uh, in terms of photography. I mean, photography, a trends come and go. Yeah. There's certain ways to shoot movies that are just popular uh, certain, yeah. at certain times and aren't popular at others. When you watch a lot of movies uh, from different decades, you mm-hmm. can often spot that's either a movie that was made in the 60s or was very clearly inspired by movies that were made in the 60s and right. uh, the 70s or the early 2000s or whatever. There's and, a there's a style that becomes popular and then falls out of favor eventually. And a lot of this uh, in recent years, uh, and what you're talking about, uh, listener, is uh, when... Uh, uh, technology changes. Yeah. And when digital cameras became a lot more common and were actually being used more and more in uh, filmmaking in early 2000s, I think yeah. um, the Phantom the, Menace really popped the cork on that. Fan, Phantom Menace, and uh, but especially the, the follow up, the um, Attack of the Clones. You're right, my apologies, yes. Attack of the Clones, which was like, I think it was mostly shot, it was like all digital, and I think it was mostly projected digital, depending on where you saw it. Yep. It was this big push to get digital technology into movie theaters, where uh, at the time it was still mostly film. And uh, for, that movie's ugly as sin. If you see it on it's digital production, yeah, like it, you, the, yeah. the dark colors aren't even black. You see like static and fragments yeah. and, and artifacts on the screen. The tech wasn't there it's, yet. Yeah, it wasn't quite there. But you know, George Lucas, the director, really wanted to push things forward technologically. Uh, digital cameras are smaller than film cameras. They're lightweight. And as such, you don't need to lock down a shot. You can carry cameras a lot more easily mm-hmm. now. You can do a handheld immediate aesthetic. And that was the aesthetic for a long time. Mm-hmm. Everything became really Paul Greengrassy, where everything was really kind of shaky and up close. Yeah, and that, that gave everything... That sort of documentary-esque kind yeah, of feel. And, and, you are there. And that was yeah. the popular filmmaking style for a long time, was to make everything that really immediate. And I feel like we're still kind of there, because now we're dealing with much more advanced digital cameras, but still digital cameras. And the tendency to lock down a shot mm-hmm. and light it a certain way and make sure mm-hmm. everything's framed up just right mm-hmm. became is, rarer. It's not as popular as a, a way yeah. to make movies anymore. You watch a Wes Anderson film now, and Wes Anderson mm-hmm. is in love with that particular mm-hmm. approach. And it, you know, say what you will about Wes Anderson, he has a very particular look and storytelling style mm-hmm. that. Has only evolved so much over time, but compared to everything the, the French else, French Dispatch is impeccable. It's impeccably crafted. <laughs> it's not my favorite one of his films by any stretch, yeah. but like it's it's a well crafted movie. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's all conscious decisions. Mm. When you compare that movie, if you watched every movie that came out the weekend that came out, and then you watch the French Dispatch, it stands out mm. because no one else is is going through that meticulous a process to make sure every frame is a painting, if you will, and. That's so, something yeah. that I miss, and I miss people who wanted to make all of their films look different or have different kinds of color timing, where you know the reds will bloom in a different way, mm-hmm. or um, you had a different texture to the to the film stock, yeah. where there's grainy or not so grainy. That's something we don't have as much with digital. Well, I've, I've noticed you know? this. There, there are certain filmmakers who they they stick to a similar aesthetic. Mm-hmm. They have a certain way of making movies, but yeah. the photography evolves with them. Uh, look uh, to go back to West Side Story again. Yeah, Spielberg's uh, Spielberg's uh, a lot. Look at some. Compare West Side Story to something like Jurassic Park. Uh, different photographers. Uh, Dean Cundey shot yep. uh, Jurassic Park, but um, 
that one has, you know, sort of bright open things. Things are sort of locked down. Spielberg's doing that same sort of thing. He's locking down the shots. He's getting the action. Mm -hmm. But the colors are way different. The Mm -hmm. photography is way different. The way the camera moves is a lot different. You want to see it night and day? Just look at Jurassic Park and The Lost World. Same director, different cinematographers, totally different vibe. Yeah, yeah. totally different. Uh, again, storytelling similar. Did Lost World. Can I see the Lost World? And Lost World has much uh, denser, colder colors. Mm. Um, like his greens are are like uh, muted. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 yeah it, it's a different kind of. It's totally different. Mm. Um, yeah, and he he has so, changed um, with the cinematographers over time. It's a great example. Yeah, uh, Tim Burton is another one. You yeah. look at sort of the the films he shot in the nineties, and things mm. are. Black and white and gnarly, uh, but, you know, the way he uses color has changed, whereas you look at something like uh, Dark Shadows, a a film you and I kind of like. Yeah, uh, it's a fun movie. It gets a bum rap. Totally underrated, Dark Shadows. But he he had moved at some point into sort of this smokier, a little bit hazier type of photography at Mm -hmm. that point, and that's uh, a kind of haziness. Oh, look at Miss Peregrine. Miss Peregrine is hazy as hell. That's his worst-looking movie, I think. You're Uh, probably right, yeah. Well, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, uh, Alice in Wonderland is just hard to Alice see. Alice in Wonderland is just murky and awful. Yeah, um, it, yeah. He he's trying to make it look all wild, but it's indistinct. Yeah, uh, because he shot the, a lot of that against digital backgrounds. He's not making these weird sets. Anyway, we kind of made our point here. We could just sort of go on and on about how yeah. uh, it's the, we're ev- the about. evolution of photography has allowed for some unfortunate trends to perpetuate. Mm-hmm. The way a lot of these big franchise pictures are made has allowed some of these trends to perpetuate remember, as well. Remember when everything was like. What was that like blue and like gold for a while there? Well, there was there was the trend of everything being uh, kind of cyan and amber. Cyan and, and amber. That's what I was thinking of. Because yeah. those Boy, were like high, nice. high contrast colors. The, yeah. the era I'm glad we're done with mm. is that early age of digital photography when everything kind of had a green filter over it. Yeah. And everything was sort of grainy and had a green filter. That, that yeah, was that, an that ugly was, trend that, of photography. That was oftentimes a great movie will come out and people will pick the wrong things from it. Mm. Boy, did people get some of the wrong things from the Matrix. The Matrix. The Matrix uh, was responsible I remember for when, a lot when of that. Training Day came out, uh, which yeah. was the year after the Matrix, and uh, or was it two years after? It was two years after. So, but yeah, it added this sort of like grainy filter, and everything was really kind of shaky. It's like I, this is an ugly film. <laughs> I don't want to watch this movie. Yeah. I, I can't even get to Denzel Washington's performance in mm-hmm. here because I'm so like I'm fighting through the photography of that movie. I like the one more than you do, but I see your point. Yeah. yeah. All right, we should move on. Yeah, okay. Thank Let's, you for your. That's a really great point. Mm-hmm. I'm, hope, I'm hopefully we helped. Yeah, um, talk about it. Here's a letter from Zach. Hello, Zach. Hi, Zach. Um, hi Bibbs and Whitney. Pronounced Bibbs and Rockwester were cool. Fair. Um, I hope this email finds you well. <laughs> oh no, it found us. <laughs> Run! <laughs> Been hiding thousands of miles beneath the Earth's crust. If it tags um, us, we become the letter. <laughs> oh, cool. Uh, I started listening to the show when you released critically acclaimed episode four, Biodome and the Martian. Oh, wow. That was, a uh, that was a, that's when we were still doing our, our like double feature uh, gimmick yeah. uh, with Schmoes. No. And I've been a fan ever since your shows helped me through difficult times in college. They helped after college when I couldn't get hired and there were and uh, they were there when the pandemic started and I became a temp at a company testing COVID. I'm now a shift manager there. Wow. This past Christmas Eve, I worked a double shift reviewing and releasing as many patient results as I could with episodes of your podcast, keeping me company once again. Oh, well, that's an honor. Glad we can be here. No, thank you, you so much. You that's, that's a hard and really important job. And thank you for that. And mm-hmm. the fact that we were able to help with that in even the tiniest way means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Uh, you're both incredibly insightful and have turned me on to many wonderful things. Thank you both so much for the hours, days and years of joy of joy and entertainment. 
that oh, gonna make me. Wit is in a cry uh, here, so thank you so much. Uh, now for uh, time for two very unrelated questions. Respect. Uh, question number one. Thanks to you, I'm able to start a Christmas tradition with my mom. Always back. You guys reviewed. It happened one night, and described Ooh. it as the movie Roman Holiday ripped off. <laughs> <laughs> Every movie ripped off. It happened one night. Yeah, um, kind of. Yeah. That Christmas, I bought both films as a gift to my mom, and we watched them together to compare. We loved it. Happened one night. Yay! Oh, it's such a lovable film too. Yeah, um, the next year, we watched it again, and for this past year, based on another recommendation of yours, I gave her The Lady Eve, and it was another hit. Yay! Uh, so now to continue the tradition, uh, would you gentlemen have any more recommendations in a similar vein? Okay, uh, so I can older... think of one one right off the top of my head. Yeah, Ernst Lubitsch's Trouble in Paradise. Great uh, pick. <laughs> That's a good pick. That's a cool pick. Or, or just anything Ernst Lubitsch in general. Yeah. Uh, well, Ernst... the shop around the corner is another one. What I what, what I first thought of as well, and that was Lubitsch oh, okay. too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ernst Lubitsch kind of pioneered a certain kind of screwball comedy that uh, it happened one night as a mm-hmm. I think in a in the tradition of even though it's a Capra movie. Uh, other Frank Capra movies would also do. I mean, Frank Capra yeah. didn't really do too much wrong as far as mm-hmm. I'm concerned. Uh, you Can't Take It With You is also a really fi- a yeah. fine film. And that one's one where like the romance, though, is it's it's sharing the screen. It's not really just a rom-com. Well, but what I love about that is that the romance mm. is part of this larger story, but it doesn't yeah. feel any less genuine. Plus, plus you get Gene Arthur. <laughs> I like Claudette Colbert, don't get me yeah. wrong, but Gene Arthur is, you know, one of those uh, Gene Arthur's uh, a great. Hollywood stars that could have continued. She retired like earlier in her career. Yeah. She could have continued. For it, it's a shame that she's not talked about with the same revered tones. We mm. like have for people like Catherine Hepburn or Rosalind Russell or something like that. She's, mm. she's amazing. Yeah, and Gene, everything, Gene she did, everything is, she them is great. Is great. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, I, mm. there's a whole bunch of like really wonderful, uh, romantic, funny movies, uh, from that era. Um, maybe a couple you haven't heard of or aren't as popular. Uh, I married a witch oh, with golly, Veronica Lake. <laughs> it's about a witch. Like, we watched like, that for the first time recently. Yeah, it's a, Veronica Lake plays like a witch who like cursed a family line so that there would be unhappy marriages for forever, and then she's resurrected. Like it would later on happen in the movie yeah, Hocus Pocus, later, yeah. and then she falls in love with the guy. And boy, is it cute! <laughs> it's really really fun. It's adorable. It's got it's got a cute magical conceit. It feels mm-hmm. like a, a contrived comedy from the nineties. Oh yeah. wait. They were referring to I Married a Witch. <laughs> yeah, uh, basically. And it's basically what they would end up uh, basing um, uh, The Witch on. It's yeah. like that, that, that created like a trend of like witch rom-coms. Mm. Uh, so that's a really, really great one. I would highly recommend that. Uh, if, you're, if you're not opposed to holiday movies, uh, uh, like actual holiday movies for the holidays, uh, I just mentioned The Shop Around the Corner. That's the movie that You've Got Mail was based on. I consider the original infinitely superior. Way more emotional, way more sweet, much better, like, use of its ensemble cast. Great film. Mm. I also recommend, this is another movie that's like a Christmas movie, but it's a really interesting, weird rom-com, is the original Christmas in Connecticut with Barbara Stanwyck, where she plays, like, the Martha Stewart of her time, but she's a fraud, she can't even cook. (laughs) Right. And uh, she's basically forced to pretend... To have a happy home life, pretend to be married, pretend to be a mother, pretend to be able to cook over a weekend for like a war hero as part of a publicity thing. And he thinks she's married and they just can't keep their hands off of each other. It's pretty it's pretty like ribald for like the (laughs) era and like terms of like how much they're like playing around with adultery. Mm -hmm. Um, But amazing ensemble cast. Really, really sweet and funny. That one's great. Oh, um, oh, oh and, and I and I have to mention uh, mm. 
my fake girlfriend, Norma Shearer. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. I'm sorry about uh, it. I forgot your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I Going through our Oscars podcast, I just mm. fell really hard for Norma Shearer. Amazing she, actor. She's just so, so good. Yeah. Uh, her movie, her, she was in uh, Hollywood Review of 1929. Mm-hmm. Uh, she won an Academy Award for the movie The Divorcee, uh, which I guess that's the one I'd recommend. Although the more the more it's, celebrated, it's, 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 it's a really serious drama. It's, though. it's, it's, a, not, it's not a it's not a funny yeah, film. It's, it's not light and frothy, but yeah. she's really good in it. Um, I guess the sort of I know this one's a little bit more serious, but it actually has a little bit of a lighter tone. It's her more celebrated, better known film, and it's mm. uh, George Cukor's The Women, or not George mm. Cukor, um, The Women. Uh, yeah, which was um, uh, 30, was, 38 was, or thirty nine. It was George Cukor. Um, 39. Okay. Yeah, I looked it up. 39. Yeah. Uh, yeah, George Cukor's The Women. Uh, she's in that one. Um, again, not not light and frothy. No. But uh, full of really wonderful performances and a lot of light, funny moments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, you, you mentioned you liked uh, The Lady Eve. One of my favorite weird rom-coms ever is another film from Preston Sturges called The Palm Beach Story. This this movie opens with one of my favorite movie openings of all time. It opens with the ending of another screwball comedy where people are like racing to get to church and like people are like tied up in closets and then they get married and the screen says the end and then here's what happened next. And it's got uh, Claudette Colbert and Joel McCrea. They're married, they're in love, but they're poor and he can't get any business prospects off the ground. And she becomes convinced that their marriage is a distraction from his career. So she runs off to get a quickie divorce and then marry some rich guy so that she can get the rich guy to invest in her ex-husband's job. And then he chases after her Mm. and he doesn't reach her in time. And now she is in the process of seducing uh, Rudy Valley. And then he ends up sort of seducing Rudy Valley's like rich sister. But meanwhile, they also can't keep their hands off of each other because they're deeply in love. It's really weird. It's really cute. I love it to pieces. It's 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 playing with the genre like before it got like completely codified, but it's clearly understanding that it's breaking a lot of rules. So if you like the Lady Eve, I think you really really like the Palm Beach story. Yeah. Um, anyway, hopefully that's some suggestions. There's no shortage of great romantic comedies from the era. Uh, we'll happily give you more later on. Uh, Zach had a second unrelated question. What's that one? Um, I have noticed that Sicario 2. <laughs> oh, God. Sicario 2 seems to be a, quote, bad apple film among you both. The initial reviews were deservedly harsh, but since then it seems that people, uh, films slash people tangentially related have been tarnished as well. For example, your opinions on the filmography of Denis Villeneuve and Taylor Sheridan seem to have noticeably sunk. Mm. Sicario 2 uh, has been has been talked about quite a few times on the podcast, so I'll ask instead. Are there any other films that recontextualize a filmmaker's career on the whole? Mm. Something that retroactively shed additional light, good or bad, on someone's career or work? Sincerely, um, uh, sincerely Zach. Uh, yeah, so if anyone's uh, not following us, Sicario 2, which uh, Denis Villeneuve didn't do the second one. Uh, that mm. was, I forget who directed the second one, but Taylor Sheridan, who wrote the original, uh, came back. And when you see the second one, the things that like disturbed me about the first Sicario and that I thought were like kind of problematic, but I thought maybe the movie was commenting on, I was, I realized that like, no, apparently to Taylor Sheridan, like those are the selling points. Hmm. Um, and I'm not as fond of Taylor Sheridan once I realized that. Hmm. Um, and I look at his whole filmography, everything that I've seen of it. And some I like better than others. I thought, um, those who wish me dead was a fun pot boiler. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, all right. it's okay. It's okay. Hmm. It's a two and a half, three star pot boiler. Uh, but, uh, 
Yeah, he's got an attitude that rubs me the wrong way, and I don't think uh, he he was being very res- he was being very responsible about border politics. <laughs> and I think in, in retrospect, Sicario doesn't seem as intelligent about it. It just seems so stylish that you kind of overlook how simplified its attitudes towards the politics yeah. are. Um, so that's so that's where we're at with that. Hmm. Um, let's see here. I'm that's trying, a good I'm question. Trying, yeah, actually, I'm trying to think of a, a filmmaker that like I was really fond of. Mm. where I was like maybe misinterpreting their point and when I finally understood what it was mm-hmm. it, it sort of like kind of darkened up their films for me I think uh, mm. this might be a weird choice but uh, Brad Bird oh uh, I, yeah I see what's coming out yeah 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 uh, he, he makes a very very entertaining movies uh, he did very, The Iron Giant he did yeah. The Incredibles he did Ratatouille I love The Iron Giant great movie um, I like Ratatouille a lot uh, mm-hmm. I like The Incredibles a lot the Incredibles has some language in it, uh, mm. where, which could perhaps be interpreted as espousing an objectivist point of view. That yeah. is the Ayn Rand stuff. Extraordinary people deserve to succeed better than uh, non-extraordinary people because yeah. they are better. The plot of The Incredibles yeah. is about a bunch of superheroes who have to pretend to be human, and it's very frustrating. And one of the kids mm. says, uh, "You know." I want. I'm special, and the mom says everybody's special, and he and the kid says that means nobody is. Yeah. And uh, if, if the specialness ever... is rarefied, yeah, and, and uh, that's... the villain wants to everyone to be superheroes. And uh, of course, I wasn't the the person to sort of key into this. A lot of people keyed into this. That, that there's a lot of uh, sort of parallels to Ayn Rand's philosophies. And uh, now, when I started seeing that in, in Brad Bird's work. All of a sudden, that's kind of all you can all see. I could start seeing yeah. in Brad Bird's work, and I went to go see his film Tomorrowland, mm-hmm. one of one of the bigger bombs uh, ever, really, mm-hmm. uh, and that has some of that obje- uh, objectivist point of view in it. Yeah. That it's there, a shame because I believe there's, there's, some, there's some good stuff in that. Movie, there's some good but, stuff yeah. in it, but yeah, the, after a while, you begin to realize, wait a minute, there's like an extraordinary chosen few among us who deserve to live in utopia and the rest get left behind. I, you know, the first and time it, I saw that, I thought to myself, what they're saying is we can choose to create a utopia and all it takes is the choice to want to live in one mm-hmm. and then you would deserve to be in one. And then the more I thought but, of it and the more I recontextualized it with his other work, I realized, oh, shit. Because no, that's, uh, that's, fun- me, that's, me, that's me making an excuse for, a bad, yeah. for bad writing here. Functionally, yeah. it is about taking people out of society, which is exactly what, like, the big sort of rich person strike and Atlas shrugged is all about. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Um, while I, I watched several Brad bird films, just sort of enjoying the, uh, you know, excitement of it and the story of it and the characters, uh, the, and I was not necessarily comfortable with some of the messaging and I couldn't figure out why until I got a broader context of seeing many of his films and hearing his points repeated over and over again and understanding, wait a minute, this guy is trying to promote something I don't agree with. Yeah. Uh, and that's makes his films a little bit more difficult to take. Yeah. And again, if you agree with those things, you probably like them more. Maybe or so, if yeah. Or if you don't care about the philosophy in your films, I guess we're an interesting podcast to listen to if that's not your vibe. Um, you know, some people want that kind of discourse to be removed from critical analysis. And I think, you know, it's a matter of, we're talking about our taste here. And if some, if someone, if a movie espouses a philosophy that you find distasteful, that doesn't necessarily mean the movie is bad. It means this is why you, one didn't enjoy it. Hmm. And maybe someone else who feels similarly would find that information useful. And yeah, I, I can't think of a better example than Brad Bird, actually. It hasn't sullied every single one of his movies for me, mm. but has changed every single Damn. one of his movies for me. Oh, uh, another one is uh, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, as, as a director, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, especially later on in his career, like the last 
30 yeah. years or so, like, I think. Like, some of his films, his politics are uh, just, he just puts it all out there. And yeah. he tries to make them very kind of nostalgic and warm, but mm-hmm. he has a point of view, and it's it's kind of hard to get out get around his point of view. Yeah, especially when he's doing um, something contemporary. When, when he's, he's doing, doing something, something historical, or, he's pretty um, good at context, but, like, yeah. I didn't see Richard Jewell. Um, that's, I did. Uh, that, they whiffed that. But I did see his film... Sully, which is about the, uh, the the pilot who uh, mm. Tom Hanks plays a pilot who, uh, in an emergency, had to uh, crash land a ship into a uh, ship, a plane. Because <laughs> I'm thinking in Star Trek terms, to, you know, one of those uh, ships that modern day Earth has that people fly through the air. Uh, he had to, he had to uh, emergency land a, an airplane in the water and saved uh, saved the people. And he was eventually brought to court by evil bureaucrats yeah. who want to punish him and find a way to pin this on him. And it has this very, like, anti-government, I hate the government, small government, very Republican vibe to yeah. it. Uh, and that's clearly Clint Eastwood's point of view, and the screenwriters as well, because they, yeah. they, they also wrote it. And you know how we know we, that? And we know that because we know Clint Eastwood's politics. We well, know he's a Republican. We also know that that didn't actually yeah, happen and, in and real life. So it's it's one of those straw man things where yeah. it's like oh we're gonna invent these bureaucrats yeah. to prove that bureaucrats are bad. Really, the guy who like spoke in front of a Republican convention to Barack Obama is represented by an empty chair, having a literal one sided argument with the guy might be prone to a straw man argument. Yeah, you think, you think. And again, if you don't know any of that, maybe you can appreciate these movies. Maybe it's, you can't. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. it it's not insidious or evil or anything. Not necessarily, but, uh, no. It's. it's in, in the case of Richard Jewell, I heard it was because I think there were some really horrendous fabrications on there's, that that were like kind of slandering some there, people. There's but. there's really disrespectful of some people's memories in that, like who were dead. Uh, yeah. I think that just really when when the whole idea is the whole point of Richard Jewell is it's really fucked up when the media gets like smells blood in the water and goes after like easy hit pieces against people who can't defend themselves, and then the movie does that. Hmm. <laughs> You're, I can't celebrate your film. I don't care how good the performances are. They're really good. Hmm. You, you've made an intensely hypocritical film, and I can't look at it any other way now. It's really frustrating. Yeah. Um, but before I started, you know, keying into a lot of that with uh, yeah. Clint Eastwood, and before I knew a lot about Clint Eastwood's personal politics, for a long time I didn't know Clint Eastwood's pers- personal sure. politics because I was young and I wasn't paying attention to that sort of thing. Yeah. You didn't know a lot about politics. Probably you couldn't, uh, all like, I knew, you know. I knew Clint Eastwood as that guy who was in those orangutan movies on TV. Ah, yes. Uh, I, 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 those were the those are the movies. I didn't see any of his westerns. Those were the movies I saw first. Were those nice. orangutan movies? Uh, Clyde. <laughs> uh, but yeah, once once you learn some of those things, it does color the rest of a, a filmmaker's filmography. Yeah, and they got may not necessarily ruin it, but changes it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, another letter. Let's do one more. All right. Here's a letter from Yuri. Hello, Yuri. Hi, um, Yuri. Hello, Will and Wit. Although I hate driving, I am fascinated with road movies, especially American ones. Uh, in your opinion, what makes a good road movie and what are some of your favorites? Uh, That's a good question. On another topic, as a former American literature major, I was fascinated with the 1970s, the social turmoil and anxiety uh, less to amazing art. Uh, what movies do you consider to be an accurate portrayal of this decade in the United States? Uh, the uh, 20, 2010s or the 2020s? The 70s. Oh, 70s. I'm oh, sorry, I missed that. Okay. Um, mm. uh, best regards, Yuri. Uh, first of all, Yuri, we're not that old. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. If anything we just say is, oh, this is an accurate representation of the 70s, mm. we're going off. We, you were born in the really late 70s. So you really weren't there for uh, yeah. most of it. Like, was it 79? I was born in 78. 78. Mm. I was born in 1982. I wasn't there for any of it. 
So we really can't say like what films capture that vibe because we weren't really there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what film, so what captured that? I don't know. Early we can we, we can talk Street? about movies that feel genuine, but we're and, and maybe we're closer to it than you, mm-hmm. depending on your age and how old you are. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're we're still going off of a bit of hearsay here. Yeah, um, I can so, point you to great movies that were made in the seventies, sure. but that's not necessarily emblematic like of the the time. Yeah. If you want to, you know, you want to talk about great mm-hmm. movies that sort of represent stuff that was going on in the seventies, we can talk about that. But movies that felt like it, we're not the ones to ask about that. You want to ask some older critics about mm-hmm. that, and I would love to hear their answers. Um, what was the first question? It was road movies. Road movies. That's a good question, actually, and that's something that I don't think I've talked about very much. Is the idea well, of um, what makes a great road movie and what are the great road movies? Um, road movies are, of course, movies where people are on the road. People are driving, typically driving, often taking other forms of transport. But the idea is the movie is about a journey going from one place to another, stops in the middle, mm-hmm. and people change along the way. Oftentimes they get to know the people on that journey better mm-hmm. than they did when they started. Yeah, and and road movies is it's one of those default genres. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've noticed when it comes to uh, like adapting some sort of uh, you know book or video game property, they'll kind of fall back on the road movie just because it's an mm. easy genre. It tends to function. Uh, yeah. They made a movie about Sonic the Hedgehog. His superpower is that he can go places quickly on on foot. On foot, and they somehow managed to turn that into a road movie where the <laughs> Sonic the Hedgehog is stuck in a car. I honestly <laughs> bless them. <laughs> Which, That's yeah, funny. Which yeah, it, it it's is this weird sort of uh, like it's it's so antithetical to, to Sonic the Hedgehog that yeah, it almost becomes a moment of humor. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the road movie, I think people don't really focus on the road anymore. It's become such a genre that it's mm-hmm. more about what's happening on the road than yeah. the actual genre we, itself. Oftentimes, there uh, used to be a lot of movies focused on the actual travel log, where we're going to go. Exactly. Um, I feel like the actual where we're going. Um, and where we are tends to mm-hmm. go by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the better road movies are the ones that give us a lot more texture when the traveling stops briefly, when they take a mm-hmm. break, when they get yeah. out of the car. Uh, as such, and uh, and as uh, what's happening to the people as they go along, what are they gaining as they go along, what are they losing as they go along? Yeah. The best road movie of all time is It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Oh, I, mm-hmm. I didn't think you were going to go. Okay, I had a different take. Um, all right. Uh, in terms of character, what's going on, because the traveling is driving everybody fucking insane in that movie. It doesn't really matter where they are. Yeah. The amount they're doing it and how much they, how frantic they are and how yeah. much they hate each other mounts and mounts and mounts and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Hmm. In terms of the texture of where they are and where they're stopping and the mm-hmm. kinds of places they're visiting, yeah. the Leningrad Cowboys... <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up. Leningrad Cowboys Go America. Yeah. I was so glad you, I was going to bring this up too. Okay. Is this incredibly by, funny by movie? Finnish filmmaker Aki Karasmaki. Yeah, it's about uh, a group of it's about a, it's about a group of musicians uh, who live they live in like Siberia or something like yeah, that, yeah. and they have these really outlandish pompadours and they play very folksy music from their hometown, and uh, they're told to go to America. They'll buy anything there. So they go to America to try to get themselves a record contract, and they're told, and they're they're very unusual musicians. Yeah. they have a look and a style 
They're yeah. completely stone-faced. They yeah. barely speak. They're like far-side cartoons. And, and they, like, and they, they have really these really weird. outlandish, like, long hairdos, like, that stand out, yeah. a big spike out of their foreheads, and yeah. these incredibly long shoes that stick out just as far. It's like, a really odd band. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they're told when they get to New York, they go to a talent agent, and the talent agent said, listen, I've only got one gig. It's a, I think it's like a wedding in Mexico in a couple of weeks. So if you can get yourselves there, the gig is yours. So they get themselves a cheap ass car and they drive across America. And along the way, they, you know, they, they bicker and infight and everything. Their manager is an asshole. Uh, but they also learn more and more and more about rock and roll and they become a better band <laughs> over time. Yeah. It is delightfully odd. Just a really weird, quirky, sweet film uh, that I would recommend to any human being. I just really it's, think it's a great film. You call it sweet. It's incredibly sardonic and it's yeah. very dark and they're carrying around a corpse but, with them. But it's but, not evil though. Like there's, there's no, a lot of dark, but, there's a lot of weirdness to it, but like everything about it is kind of genuine and innocent about that, I mm. think. And I think even though like there's this recurring thing where like the manager is like, okay, we I need, we need to keep money is tight. So uh, for everyone for lunch, you're all sharing the same turnip. And then he like walks behind a building and is eating a sandwich. You know, like the, that's like the extent of his evil. It's not cool. Eventually he's taking a task for it, but like, that's, that's about as evil as it gets. Um, I love this movie so damn much. I'm so glad. I was actually going to, I thought you were going to go with, in terms of um, a great travel movie, a great road movie about people who, like lose their minds over the course of it, but mm. eventually come closer. Planes, trains, and automobiles. I hate planes, trains, and automobiles. I don't understand why. I really hate it. I love that movie to pieces. <laughs> I think it's great. John uh, Hughes made a variety of road movies over the years, some of which he directed, some of which he didn't. Um, the National Lampoon's Vacation. Yeah. Um, little hit or miss. Like it's a little episodic, and some of the episodes will work better than others, but it's mostly pretty genuine. Mm. Uh, that's a pretty good one. Uh, he did a movie that would tanked. When it came out, absolutely tanked. It became a punchline. And I think nowadays people realize it was actually pretty good. He did a movie with Ed O'Neill called Dutch. I like Dutch a lot. Dutch is good. Ed O'Neill plays a guy who's dating a woman whose son... He's like a, is, a spoiled brat in yeah, boarding school. Played by Ethan Embry in his motion picture debut. Um, yeah, he's, he's a spoiled brat. His dad's rich. And his dad's been kind of like emotionally manipulating his son against his mother ever since the divorce. So he hates his mom. And he doesn't want to mm-hmm. go with this weird guy. The guy wants to drive him across a couple of states to be with his mom for Thanksgiving. Uh, and he's like, over the course of this, we will get to know each other, even if he is a bit of a brat. And it turns out this kid is so unbelievably damaged by what his dad has done to him mm. that it's an incredibly uphill battle. And they actually end up in a kind of war with each other. Um, sometimes it's dark, but it's mostly really great. Well, the, through every like time they like try to hurt each other or do something yeah. kind of cruel or weird, um, yeah. they, they do bond. And of course, yeah. they have mutual struggles as well. And, and the fact that the kid gives Ed O'Neill as much like physical torment as Ed O'Neill does the kid really mm. takes the curse off of that. Yeah. And it makes it feel a bit more, well, bit and, more cartoony. And, and the kid yeah. starts it. Like, he's the one who yeah. starts beating up on Ed O'Neill. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's see, another one. Oh, we brought it up earlier. It, uh, it happened one night. Oh, there you go. Is yeah, that, where, they, where they fall in love on the road. Yep, that's great. That's one of the original road movies. Mm. Boy, is it a delight. Oh, jeez. Oh, there's so many. Yeah, um, planes, trains, and automobiles. Is, is... A lot of people love it. I guess Whitney does. And, like, well, it, it, stre- it stresses me out is what happens. <laughs> that, I, you know, I, I, I don't laugh at that movie. I'm just completely made completely uncomfortable by how bad their trip is going. <laughs> And uh, and I don't like either of them. I don't think either oh, of them is not like even John Candy. I love John Candy. No, that movie. Oh. I don't like. I I 
find I find him as annoying as the Steve Martin character does, oh. but I also find the Steve Martin character to be kind of a monster himself. So mm. I don't want to watch those guys, and I don't want to trip with them. I'm just going to be, be stressed a little out harsh on that one, but all right. Uh, look, I react to, to I react to it how I react to it. I, I have to be honest. And, no, yeah, it's, it's be stre- honest. it stresses me out to watch uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. I, I, can, I don't I, I don't find it delightful or funny in the least. I can be the same way with some comedies. Mm-hmm. This that that isn't one of them. I feel like I, it's. I, felt it's this... fu- I feel like their stress feels genuine enough that I care. And mm-hmm. by the time John Candy has that like speech about like, hey, I, I like me and like my kids like me, and, like, mm-hmm. that just gets me every time. It's such oh, a good okay. bit. It's one of John Candy's best moments yeah, as an there, actor. There are some movies that I think just hit a little. Uh, another Steve Martin film, uh, Ron Howard's Parenthood. It's another one that yeah. stresses me out. It's like, yeah. oh god, every, everything's just falling apart. Stop yelling, please. Yeah. Turn the movie off. Turn the movie off. Uh, the Out of Towners is another one. This mm. trip is just going worse and worse and worse, and I'm not laughing. Oh, you know what's a great road trip movie came out this, just this year? Hmm. Mitchell's versus the Machines. That's a pretty fun one too. That's a really fun one. <laughs> That's great. Where the road trip turns into a robot apocalypse. Mm. Delightful. And, Absolutely and, delightful. And like being frustrated by your family doesn't stop even though the robot apocalypse is mm-hmm. happening. Um, mm. Oh, you know what's another one I kind of like? Hmm. Uh, I think it's a Nora Ephron movie, Michael, with John Travolta. Oh, where he's, he's Ar- Archangel Michael? Yeah, yeah, he's an Archangel and he's just like on Earth for like a sabbatical and a bunch of people from a tabloid are following him around to like do a story on him and uh, they're driving him back to like their home office for like a, you in, know... In the, New York City, yeah. Uh, I think it's Chicago actually, but... Oh, they, no, you're right. It's yeah. it's because um, they go to the Sears Tower. Exactly. Um, well, but, it's, not, it's not the Sears Tower. So, but that's one where he, Michael wants to do all the touristy shit. Mm. They don't want to do any of that. So they just want to get him back to like, they want to have the most efficient road trip possible. And he's like, no, mm. listen to me. This isn't just any ball of twine. This is the world's biggest ball of twine. <laughs> and I want to see that. That is the it's, thing you did, you uh, humans. As, as an angel, he's interested in like the best of human endeavors. Like, yeah. The world's largest nonstick frying pan. Yeah. And that's cute. Mm. It's a cute movie. I like that movie a lot. So, um, Anyway, there's no shortage of good uh, road movies. Hopefully, maybe that gives you a few to watch. Um, but anyway, that's it for We've Got Mail this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. If we didn't get your email, we apologize. Oh, we, we never get to all of them. You write a lot, and we're grateful for that. Um, feel free to write again. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Uh, Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Good stuff. Mm. And and seriously, it means a lot to us. And very special thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimednetwork. Uh, without you, our shows could not exist, so it just means the world to us. And if you haven't signed up yet and you want to, we have a lot of exclusive shows over there. Uh, we've got shows about Batman, shows about Star Trek. Uh, we got some commentary tracks we're going to do before the end of the month. We have a show we're reviewing every single episode of, sorry, every single Best Picture nominee in history, which fell a bit behind this last couple of months as we got busy, but we're going to be picking up on that before the end of the month as well. Um, we have a Hangout uh, online as well with uh, some of our members as well. Mm-hmm. We do that every month. Uh, so, yeah, thank you, everybody. Patrons, just you mean the world to us. We're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm Matt William Bibiani. I'm Matt Whitney Seibold. And, uh, hey, guess who has a new radio drama? Oh, that would be me. Um, I I wrote and made a new ra- uh, new audio drama. Yeah. It's, uh, I and guess, it's, I guess, it's I guess for- the kids are calling them scripted podcasts these days, oh, but... Uh, you know what? Whatever term you want to call it, yeah. I have one. Uh, it's and, a, a twenty-two minutes themed. It is. It's a Christmas show. It's called "She Began to Dance Around," and it is about a, a, a doctor who is uh, stalking Frosty the Snowman in her car. Uh, <laughs> 
uh, only only one actor. It's all uh, you know. It, it was conceived of during the pandemic, and I wanted to make it as sort of uh, mm. act as as small a cast as possible and yeah, production uh, friendly. Yeah, uh, a friend of mine, Chelsea Spirito, she's a professional uh, voice actor, and she also does some production herself. Mm. Um, and she is just acting the hell out of this thing. She's really she's really wonderful. It. And, yeah, uh, she's really great. And yeah, that's available uh, for all of our twenty dollars patrons. But if you just want to buy it, I'll sell you one. I have an MP3 uh, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, contact, contact him on social media. On the social media. I'm on the Twitter. Yeah. I'm on the Instagram and uh, on, on the grams, as no kids say anymore. <laughs> They're all on TikTok. I, I'm not over yeah. there yet. Uh, the I'm I'm old. I'm not going to get on TikTok. But yeah, by the time we're on, on TikTok, you guys will be like three different social media services. Yeah, you'll, it's something else will have started already. Yeah. Oh, I'm on I'm on Glubler. Uh, Neural Net. Something. Yeah. Uh, and contact me on c- Contact me on Zingerbuns, and uh, it just <laughs> you can Venmo me, you can PayPal me, and I, I'll just email you an MP3, and uh, you can enjoy that thing and give it to friends for uh, for Christmas. But yeah. buy a separate copy for each friend. Because, of course. Yeah. That, I, I I want you to do that because I make more money that way. <laughs> Seriously, it's really great. I hope everyone enjoys it. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's it for we've got mouse. So thank you everybody it. once again. Hope you have a great week. And uh, sincerely yours, Bibson Whitney.